Indian Summer Festival's podcast series was recorded at Tiffin Talks, our lunchtime idea series featuring a diverse group of thinkers, artists, and innovators. Tiffin Talks gathers people to share ideas and a meal together, turning strangers into friends. I'm Sirish Rao, Artistic Director and Co-Founder of the Indian Summer Festival, and we're glad to share this talk with you. Tiffin Talks at ISF 2018 was supported by Van City. Special thanks to our major partners, Simon Fraser University, Langara College and Creative BC, and our media partners, the Georgia Strait, CBC and Spice Radio. Our funders, Government of Canada, City of Vancouver, Vancouver Foundation, British Columbia Arts Council and Business for the Arts. This episode is called Literary Changemakers. Shalene Knight of Growing Room Feminist Literary Festival invites Yonina Kirton and Joanne Arnott to partake in an intimate chat about their own experiences in the Canadian literary community. They will discuss what it's been like navigating a male-dominated literary scene while raising families, working, writing, and creating mind-blowing work. Learn how they demanded space, took it, and continue to hold it. I'm really happy to be here, and I'm thrilled to be here with Joanne Arnott and Yonina Curtin. Both of these ladies mean a lot to me. Their writing means a lot to me. And, you know, we talk a lot about energy, about taking space, about holding space and what that means. And to me personally, I love the idea of feeling other writers around me when they're not there. And I think Yonina knows exactly what I mean. And uh, I think... Joanne probably also knows exactly what I mean. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And I also really want to touch on what it means to hold space and what it means to create space for other people, especially marginalized folks, and what tools these folks need to thrive. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But before we do, I'm going to have my guests introduce themselves so that you can get to know them authentically. So I'll start with Joanne or not. Okay. <laughs> uh, my name is, uh, as she said, Joanne Arnott. Uh, I'm a poet, writer, activist, blogger, mom. I have six children, none of whom are really children anymore. <laughs> uh, and six books of poetry, and then a book of, uh, well, a few other books uh, in other genre. And I spend a lot of time doing uh, facilitating unlearning racism workshops. I can't remember if it was seven, ten years. Uh, and the last one, of, it's almost 20 years since I did that kind of work. So for the last, you know, ten years or so, I've been primarily uh, uh, doing more editing and mentoring. Uh, and whatever workshops I do are, are focused on uh, people enjoying uh, their voices. Hi, I'm Yonina Curtin. I'm a Métis Icelandic poet and facilitator. Um, I want to swear and say a S-H-I-T disturber. <laughs> I don't know. I don't Do normally it. talk like that, but lately I really feel like I oh, am. Yeah. I find myself at the center of some complex conversations. <laughs> Uh, so, what to say? I have a couple of books, a couple of collections of poetry, but I'm a late bloomer. So I published my first book at 60 in 2015, and my second in 2017. And so my interest in equity and inclusion, as I think of it, it goes way beyond before I was a writer. 
and it started um, in my, well, 30 years ago, I guess, and it, as I went along as a single mother, I became more and more concerned about how things work <laughs> and, and how they don't work for some people. So I became more and more interested in uh, creating space, helping others move, move along. Uh, so my books often examine sexism, racism, and from a, from, I do it from a very personal point of view because I was Icelandic and raised in a family of blonde and blue-eyed people and I was not. Um, I really stuck out. So, uh, and just that pressure when you have a white mother for her, she wanted me to be a certain kind of way. And so I, her and I loved each other dearly, but there was this pressure for her trying to assimilate me. <laughs> and I'm sure her intentions were good, but it hurt. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I, I think a lot about that, a lot about how we navigate the terrain in our own families and what that looks like for so many of us, right? And hearing you talk about trying to meet your mother's expectations, I think about my mother and what her expectations were, if there were any. And, you know, I don't think at that time when I was a young girl, I don't think her expectations were, you know, do this, do well in school, be this, match this. It was just survival. And so hearing stories like that are eye-opening for me. And that's why I think having conversations like this are so, so integral. So, yeah, thank you for, for sharing, both of you. Okay, so we're going to jump right in, and I think the way we want to do this is just share a little bit about our experience in the Canadian literature canon, I guess we could say, and then just go from there and, you know, see kind of what comes up. And I want Joanne and Yonina to just both throw whatever you want out there. And so there's no structure. We just want to have a really intimate conversation. And I think this is the perfect space for that. So, yeah, and what I really love is that so many of us in this community have this connection, this energy, and it's really unexplainable. And there'll be so many times where I'm just sitting, working from home, and I'll get a phone call from Yonina, or I'll get an email from, from Joanne, and it's just it's this wonderful, wonderful thing. And it really makes me think about space and how women need to uplift each other and what that looks like and why it's necessary and why we constantly have this ability to do so. It could be a phrase, it could be a phone call, an email, and all of a sudden, we are up here and what that lifting does. So I wonder if both of you can talk about your connections in the Canadian literature community and why you think having these relationships with other women writers is so important. I can, when I think back of, you know, how I became a publishing writer, uh, I had done a uh, uh, women's writing school, summer school, and my instructor was Beth Brandt, a Mohawk writer. Uh, and even at that time, I was primarily a poet, and she was teaching fiction. But I so needed to connect with her because she identified as a uh, mixed-blood person, and that was something I really needed, you know, an elder to <laughs> speak to with. So, uh, um, so she was the person who, first of all, gave me permission to kind of, you know, just be who you are. Second of all, she asked me to step in and facilitate an unlearning racism workshop, which I had never even attended one <laughs> before. Uh, and then she also uh, 
when I had a manuscript ready, I showed it to her, and I sent it to publishers in Toronto. And in the meantime, I was living on Powell Street, and she, you know, connected with publishers, uh, press gang publishers, also on Powell Street, and uh, said, well, there's this poet. <laughs> so they phoned me up <laughs> and said, we hear you have a manuscript. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> so uh, kind of a different phases of my life, uh, different, uh, it's primarily being women have been very, uh, pivotal in, in helping me along. For instance, the uh, Barb Kuhn worked at Press Gang for many years, and she edited my first books of poetry. And at a certain point in recent years, she asked me if I would be interested in editing. And so she kind of tutored me through my first few uh, editing projects. So that was a very uh, specific hand along. Press Gang was very, very good. Much, it's, I mean, the publishing, industry has changed. That I think that came out in 91. So the changes in the publishing industry from then to today are quite, you know, wow. <laughs> but Press Gang did a very good uh, job of, of connecting me with other Indigenous women uh, across the country who would then, you know, help me further. So uh, I first met Maria Campbell because uh, they had put me up at her house, <laughs> which is a Emerging writer was kind of overwhelming, but uh, uh, so subsequently we've kept in touch and we've uh, uh, done some work together. In recent years, I would say Lee Miracle is the person that uh, that I kind of get the most uh, of that kind of a loving attention from. Whenever I can corner her, no, <laughs> no, generally by email. But we also try to see each other when we're together in town, and we've done a few projects like. Um, a birth. Well, with Maria Campbell, I'd done the Mother's Journey, which was a writing retreat for uh, Indigenous mothers and grandmothers uh, to do writing. And with Lee Miracle, we did a birth stories event uh, at the Friendship Center, and that was also quite wonderful. Anyways, carry on. <laughs> I forget the question. Yeah. <laughs> How did you get into Canlit? How did you survive oh, oh. and who helped you? <laughs> Women supporters, all That's that good stuff. That's right. Connections, okay, energies. there. Yeah, it just lost me for a second, but uh, I'm back. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I'm as I said, I'm new, fairly new to this Canlit world. Um, I had no idea when I entered the Canlit world that when I said I was a Métis and Icelandic, that being Métis would mean so much. I didn't know that there was going to be this sudden interest in Indigenous authors and. Um, and I sometimes feel like, should I have done that? Should I have taken that space? Um, it's, it's a complicated terrain. But uh, my mentors have been, Joanne's been one of my mentors uh, in the Canlet world, helping me negotiate, uh, especially the Indigenous end of things. Um, Betsy Warland is a big, big advocate of mine, and I'm her apprentice right now at SFU at the Writer's Studio. And I learn a lot from Betsy all the time. And I've been working with her since I was in the studio in 2007. And she regularly offers me um, opportunities that will up my visibility, <clears throat> whether it's be a on a jury for poetry or if someone's looking for someone to write something, she'll forward my name. And that is what we need. Um, so I've learned that from her. 
Um, Shalene, well, she's another one. We work very well together at Room. And uh, yeah, so it, I think it's the offering opportunities, making that space. Um, I've had a lot of people who were very, very good at that, who weren't interested in power imbalances, that weren't interested in being having followers, wanted to have colleagues and peers, which is the way people like Betsy and Ingrid Rose operate, which I really find refreshing. Um, and that's the way I prefer to operate. We're a collective at Room Magazine. I like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you, Yonin. I love what you said about offering of opportunity. I think that carries a lot of weight. And when we think about offering an opportunity, what does that look like? What tools are attached to that? It's not just here's this space for this limited amount of time. It's also here's this space and here's how we want to keep you here. What do you need? And I think asking people what they need is integral and so important and a conversation that I think needs to be dived into quite a bit. So. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to mention two quotes that I think might kind of encompass what we're trying to do here today. And I, I stumbled upon two quotes from Audre Lorde that I'd like to share. So the first one is, if I didn't define myself for myself, I would be crunched into other people's fantasies for me and eaten alive. And the other one is, I am not free while any other woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own. And so thinking about that, I think about all the struggles that we have and how different those struggles can be. And they can be in life, they can be you know, in writing, they can be in mentorship, they can be in facilitation, but there's struggles there. And I think talking about what those struggles are and what those struggles do for us just opens up this whole other conversation. And again, it's always about opening conversations that lead to other conversations that lead to, oh, really? And I think that's really important that, oh, really, like you didn't know this is what somebody was going through and now you're in it and now you're part of it. So just being here today, I think we're having that, oh, really, kind of a, a thing. And I love that. So, yeah, um, I just wanted to mention um, that I really love when I stumble upon Yonina somewhere, you know, we might be doing an event and we don't know that we're in an event together, which is kind of weird, right? Does that happen to you, Joanne? Like, and I'm just sitting there and I'm like, oh, it's Yonina. And all of a sudden I just feel safe. I feel secure. I feel like, okay, this is not going to be, you know, as scary as I thought, right? So I think about those relationships, you know, especially in, in CanLit where I might be placed on a panel with five really seasoned male white writers who are doing amazing things and then there's me this brand new writer younger from Vancouver have no idea where I am when I'm placed somewhere else and so having that security for me is massive so I wonder how do you both feel when you're placed in a panel or can you talk about an experience where you felt like oh no this is not the place for me why am I here what do I do Well, I know I've had a lot of uh, struggles with uh, anxiety, you know, over the years. And I do remember one of the first really big readings that I had done, and that was at the Returning the Gift, uh, kind of international indigenous writing conference. And I was so scared, I thought I was going to pass out. <laughs> this is when my first book had come out. So I remembered uh, something that I had uh, read about Edith Piaf, that she used to perform bare feet. So I took off my shoes and socks <laughs> so I could feel the ground. And uh, 
and I managed to do my performance and <laughs> not keel over on stage. Uh, much more recently, I remember one event that I, uh, that I went to, which was more of a roundtable discussion. And uh, I actually had a very good feeling going into it. It was at University of Toronto. And I'd done uh, a number of events at University of Toronto, which had gone quite well. And uh, so I just remember arriving in the conversation or into the room. And I really liked the woman who had organized it. And then I just kind of glanced around at the all the people at the table, and it suddenly came into my mind that everyone here is so much more wealthy than I am. They are so much more educated than I am. They are so much, and you know, and it just went through the list. And it was just, you know, the, uh, the conversation went, but it was so difficult for me to kind of get over that, uh, I don't know, somewhere between intimidation, but actually much more like resentment. It's like, <laughs> you know, uh, you guys have had it so easy. You know, if I had gone that route, I would have relaxed and been, you know, quite articulate. <laughs> but, you know, people don't come together. They want to change the world. They don't want to be berated for, you know, who, who we all were born to be. So, uh, so that's, I guess, a couple of examples of, you know, more and less successfully uh, <laughs> dealing with that. I don't know if it's my imagination, but I think I'm the person that people underestimate all the time. Mm -hmm. Maybe I just look too sweet or something. But <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes I sound a little flaky, so um, sometimes I do have felt a little bit dismissed on a panel. Um, but I hadn't gotten started. You got I, I have to warm up a little bit. <laughs> so um, I have to have methods to to calm myself. I'm aware of that, and I and I feel all those feelings. I don't have a university education. I'm on a panel with two women, strong women who are fiction writers. I'm a poet writer. I've already got a mark against me, right? I mean, nobody seems to care about poets. <laughs> They're there. To, everyone's there to see them, and. Uh, and they're very strong, and there's a moderated panel, and I, I just really don't know what to do, because they're just going like a firing squad back and forth, talking about some things I didn't even know the words, right? So that's very intimidating. But I happened to have a cedar umbilical cord with me that I had brought with me, and that cedar umbilical cord was gifted to me in a matriarch ceremony, and it was gifted to 80 matriarchs in the city, and um, when I was there, I was, I was really aware of how the Indigenous women in the group operated, especially one of the 13 grandmothers who has some fame, I guess you could say, but the way she was in the circle, you wouldn't know her from another person. She just introduced herself by her first name. So I sat with these women doing this with each other and me in the middle thinking, I'm probably supposed to say something, but I really don't know what to do, and just held the cedar umbilical cord and thought about those women and thought, I don't have to say anything. Like if I'm invited to speak, I'll speak, but I don't have to say anything. I'm just gonna hold this cord. And when everything was done, the students were asked if they would like to ask some questions and they only asked questions of me. They didn't ask the other two a single question. And that taught me a lot, you know? So sometimes being quiet is good because I can be quite a loud mouth. Uh, um, I can be um, sort of assertive and, um, and interject myself if I feel there's unfairness. And, uh, but I've learned that sometimes it's better to remain quiet and wait for a better opportunity. 
and that things will kind of work themselves out. But sometimes you do have to speak up. Yeah. yeah. That's so great. And, you know, we do have to speak up too. But sometimes I think we need that ally to also speak up. So, you know, I was doing an event uh, a couple of months ago and someone in the audience had said something really just terrible. And, you know, us three women of color on the stage were just kind of stopped for a second, just like, did we just hear what we think we heard? And the entire audience gasped. They were like, ah. but not one person stood up and said, wait a minute, what you just said was inappropriate. And I don't think that you should be holding that space right now. So I think sometimes we need that, that we shouldn't have to always car carry that emotional weight or do that emotional labor constantly because you know what? It gets a little bit exhausting. But yeah, I think sharing these experiences is so, so important. And I remember another really amazing experience where I was on a panel with a really, really established writer. Everybody was there for her, and I kind of knew that. But the organizer of the event was also very aware of that. And he was watching the book sales table, and he's like, okay, they're buying a lot of her books and not a lot of Shalene's books. So I'm going to talk to Shalene at the book table so she doesn't feel left out. And I noticed that, right? And, but I felt so comfortable because he was doing that. And I'm like, it's these little things that yeah. just, you know, totally change the game. And you might not think about that. You know, you might see two authors sitting at a table, both with a stack of books, one author with a huge line and another author with nobody. So what do you do? You know, do you discourage that writer from taking part in events because, you know, they're not as popular or they're not as well known? Or do you create a tool for that author? So having that organizer just kind of sit beside me at my level, kneeling on the ground, you know, just keeping me a little bit occupied was absolutely incredible. And I don't think I'll ever forget that. So having those allies and having that space to share is another important thing as well. So I love that. I love... I, l I just love the idea of toolkits and just talking about what folks need, but to offer folks what they need, you have to ask them first, right? So it's that whole conversation again. So, you know, you are both facilitators, you're mentors, you're writers, you're amazing women doing amazing things. How do you, how do, you do it all? You know, we're mothers, we have kids, we have jobs, we have, we're speaking on panels, we're doing, we're running around like crazy. We're not making a ton of money, you know, we're doing our thing, but how do we survive? Why are we still doing this? Why have we not given up? Whoever wants to speak a little bit about that, and then I'll say something a little lighter. Are you tired of going next? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how have we survived? Hmm. Well, I almost didn't a number of times. I, I have to say, and pre-writing life as well, you know, just in life, I've had a very challenging life, you could say. Um, a lot of violence, a lot of, um, well, I had some poverty experiences, single mom, a lot of stuff happened. Um, so, which is why I was interested in equity and inclusion uh, in workplaces and stuff, because sitting next to my coworkers at Canadian Airlines, where I worked at one point, um, and making $12 an hour because I was new, um, and they're jetting around all over the world because they're not new, and half of them married a, a rich guy who just wanted them to have the, the passes. <laughs> right? That happened. And, so, and, it, and why not? I mean, if you can do that, why not? But there I am wondering how I'm going to get my groceries. You know, so um, it's not enough to be invited is a lot of times is what I'm thinking. So how do we support people once we get them there? 
And so I think of I think of Canadian because we did have a hiring initiative to hire eight, uh, they called it Aboriginal at the time, Indigenous employees, and uh, hardly anyone stayed. So it was a great idea to hire them, but then they just went, oh, here, just go mix with everybody. And I guess they assumed that it would be easy for them to come into the office. Um, but there was so much prejudice, it wasn't. And many people quit within six months. Not me, because I had been there before. That was my second time with them. And I had good relationships with many people from years ago. So we have to, but we did spend some time, Cecilia Point and I, thinking about, because she was also there, what could we do to make this better? But there, we just couldn't come up with anything at that time. So in the literary world, we're still, I'm still doing that. I'm still trying to think of what can I do to make it better for people coming up behind me. I think of people who are in anthologies that I'm in, um, like the Downtown East Side, and one author in particular. You know, he still hasn't published a book yet. There's all sorts of things that he hasn't done that I've been able to do because people took me under their wing, because people helped me improve as a writer, because people helped me get a publishing. My first publishing contract came from a reference from Marie Clement. So. Um, how can I offer those same things to people coming behind? I think mentorship is a big, big, big thing in writing. And if you don't get it, it's, it can really affect your writing. You know, and even just thinking about mentorship and what that looks like is a whole other realm too. Because it's not just, you know, the professional. It's also, you know, the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual. It's all of that connected. And so having strong mentors out there and available is really important too. And for me, I don't know, I'm kind of interested in having a woman of color mentor or having, you know, a black mentor and, and trying to find that in, you know, in my area where I live is not, not that easy. Like even just thinking in Canada, how many, how many women of color editors are there working in publishing houses? Not very many, I will tell you. And so when I put my book into a publisher's hands, I say, hey, you know, I would like to work with someone who understands a lot of what I write about. That's pretty integral too. So in thinking about that, why we write what we write, I think it's really important to also say, why do we publish what we publish? So we can write whatever we want, but we have this opportunity to put it out into the world you know, and once it's out into the world, we cannot take it back. So what support and tools are in place for us once that work is into the world? It's out there. So I think that's another thing to discuss as well. You know, our work is difficult, it's tough, it's hard writing, and now we've done the work, we put it out there. How do we, how do we decide how people engage with that? And what support is there for us? Social media is a big thing now. So, you know, if I'm doing an interview and someone doesn't like what I said, what tools are there for me to survive and, you know, in terms of self-care? And I know we both talk a little bit about that too. So, yeah, I just, I think about all this and all of this comes up as I'm listening to both of you speak. So thank you for, for sharing. And now I kind of want to flip it. I want to say, do you, either of you have any questions that you feel like you're never asked on a panel or in an event that you would like to talk about? Because we don't, I don't have all the, all the questions. And sometimes I'm like, why didn't this person ask me this? I and the panel's that. over, right? So I'm going to hand it over to both of you and just, you know, tell me, tell us, you know, a question or two that you wish, wish, wish you'd be asked when you're on a panel. Well, one thing that, you know, I, di I didn't actually answer your last question. And th this question 
kind of works with it that, you know, a lot of, uh, because I have been poor all my life and uh, because I had a, quite a few children, one of the jobs that it was possible for me to do while taking care of small children was, you know, to write at home, to publish, you know, to mail it off or these days email it. And uh, uh, so that whole dance between, you know, being a mother and being a writer has been really intimate for me. And uh, as I've gotten older and as the kids have gotten older, then I've had more uh, opportunities for, well, even, even in the early days, you know, those outside the house jobs, right? It's like to go from like washing the floor on your hands and knees or changing diapers and then you're up on stage and there's, <laughs> you know, it's like there's a really nice balance to that. <laughs> then you go back home where everybody thinks, you know, you don't know anything. <laughs> so, uh, um, if there's a question within that, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, mm, I'll keep thinking. I'll pass it along and uh, or even so for think someone how to, to refine you what it. you need, right? Like if someone were to say, what do well, you need? Yes, a lot of the, yeah. the you know, challenges, because if I go to a festival but I have a breastfeeding child, right. I'm not going to be able to go to the pub after and get to know everybody, right? So exactly. there's, you know, there's a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. So that, that's probably a good one. <laughs> I think I'm, star I'm starting to get a little bit braver about talking about my health issues in this context, right? So um, when you say, what do you need, uh, it's very hard for me to be anywhere sometimes, and I, yet I show up. And so um, what would you need? Uh, recently, someone that was doing uh, a panel, and they wanted me to be there all day and all night, which is almost impossible for me. Um, they paid for a hotel room for me across the street. I said, that's about the only way I could do it. I thought that was fantastic, you know. So they recognized that I have limited energy with my health, and that took a lot of stress off. Um, and I didn't have the money to pay for that hotel myself. Um, and I think sometimes people assume that we have the money to pay for things, like a taxi, um, a bus fare. Uh, there's many, many different things that people assume we have money for to print off things. I mean, if you're on a low budget, printing is expensive. <laughs> Maybe you don't even have a printer. Um, so I think that these things are um, critical, that we need them. And people, if people can provide them in any way, a friend of mine just provided my chosen daughter with a laptop. And she's going to be applying for the writer's studio. Yes, I'm very excited about that. So, you know, she would not have been able to do that without a laptop. And so sometimes it's actual physical things and people are graciously offering these things to us. Um, and sometimes it's just like, yeah, maybe we need a bus ticket. I've been there where I didn't have a bus, I didn't have the means to get somewhere. I used to say my life was a 10 block radius. Yeah. <laughs> I had my shopping cart, yeah. Safeway was close by. Like when you don't have money, life gets a little small. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I think about that all the time when I'm asked to do something. I'm like, wait, there's like 30 things I must check first. Like, do I have this, 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 and this? You know, so that's really an, an important conversation. But I think now I'm just sitting here kind of feeling some heat on my, my shoulder looking at these three beautiful books together. So I see my book here. I see Joanne's book. I see Yonina's book. And I love the power of that. I love the weight. I love the strength that I'm holding here. And I think it's really important to talk about our struggles, the things that we need, 
what we need to go forward and keep writing this and keep doing this, but I also want to celebrate the success of these beautiful books and the strength that we we all have together to be able to put these books on the table and, and put our words out into the world, which I'm very proud of. So I also want to talk a little bit about resilience and about the strength that has to exist for us to be able to continue and to keep doing this. So I think I'm, I'm really proud of the both of you. So thank you for sharing your words and, and having your books available to, to us so we can hold those close. So thank you both first and foremost. I just want to round of applause for Yonina and Joanne. Yeah. And so I think, you know, a lot of times we're, we talk about what we've been through, our struggles and how we got here, but there's very little time left to talk about the success and the result of that. And that's kind of close to my heart as well. So I just wanted to mention that and finish with that. And that's pretty much all we have, unless you two have some more fantastic questions or comments or anything else to throw out into the wind, the literal wind. Well, would it work for each of us to read just a tiny <gasps> piece? Yes, of I was hoping you would offer. Right. I didn't want to put the pressure on you to read. So. <laughs> you want to give me my book? I didn't bring Yay. <laughs> Let's share a little bit of this Actually, beauty. Actually, I, I speak best through poetry anyway. <laughs> Let's do it. I feel much, much more comfortable here. Whoever finds one first gets to start. All right. <laughs> I'm going to let the wind pick my page. Let's just see what happens. Now it's not going to go. Help it along. Can someone scream out a page number for me? Six. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> but I'll let them go first. But I'm going to read oh, the six. Oh, you're bold. I'm just lazy. That's, oh. oh my goodness, I could <laughs> never do that. I'm, That's not I'm fair. Pa page six is part of the table of contents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait, why does it start on page Lots 15? Lots of titles. Oh, I just learned something. 27, I like that. Okay, do, do I read about Donald oh, yeah. Trump? Nice. Or, are, there are there children here? No. There's no children here. Am I, there's no, no general. Okay. Well, I'm going to read this poem that's called Grab That Pussy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's, um, I wrote it uh, a few days before he was elected when I was realizing he was going to be elected, and I was so mad. Um, women and girls everywhere will not say where it hurts. Their bodies, war-torn countries, where between legs we find places of conflict. Many try to hide in bombed-out shelters, hoping to avoid the daily losses of sovereignty. We know our flesh is considered a place of entertainment by a man who says, I just grab them by the pussy, and a whole country that ignored whistles from a dog with a bone picked clean by toothy lies, while women wept many alone in rooms with others, others who have never asked where does it hurt. Suggestions of pivot offered as possibility that this man is not a monster, that we are in good hands, hands that grab pussies, and a mind that considers itself king of castle, that looks for ways out of fray caused by his own comments, the rating of women, late night tweets, assertions of non-existent Miss America sex tapes. When he is on tape, 
offering admissions of lurking backstage with underage girls naked. And 58 years old, when he speaks to Howard about an 18-year-old Lindsay Lohan saying, deeply troubled, therefore good in bed. So much recorded vitriol, and yet he will be king, showing us that the he said, she said arguments are but a smokescreen. We know what he said, and it does hurt everywhere. So this, uh, my last collection was called Halfling Spring, an internet romance. So a lot of the poems are based on coming out of uh, email conversations. And uh, so I'll read one that's, uh, that comes out of a dream. So I'm describing uh, unreality. Water walk. The part of the dream I failed to tell because I couldn't quite place it yet, I have now placed. The road scene. I pull up in a car, the driver says, here? I say, yes, that's his place. I look at your fine house and the coach house office beside it, more fine than anything you might have dreamt up for yourself. I have the small black disc in my hand and I leave the car. I do not cross the street to your house and office, but head off the other way at a good pace. I have my adventures. I succeed in retrieving your message at the last. The part of the dream I like best is the walk I take out of the cavern. My small son on my hip, I am slow walking through cool waters. I dream these water dreams each time I am ready to give birth. They reassure. The little coach house I know is the place you practice your doctoring, a place of affection, a place of passion. Love doc, word doc, dream talk, water walk. It's such a treat to be able to hear both Yonina and Joanne read again in the same space. I had a blast hearing you both at the SFU lunch poems. That was like hypnotizing for me. So I'm just like staring at you both right now. <laughs> now I have to read. So uh, I'm going to read from Dear Current Occupant. Uh, it's basically me writing to all the current occupants of my childhood home. So I moved about 20 or 30 times as a young girl. So I'm writing letters to everyone who lives in these houses now. So I'm going to read, Dear Current Occupant, House with a Sign in the Window. Handwritten in red felt pen, a forent sign with duct tape in a window. Of a basement suite we used to live in. Beside it, a house, vacant, but always evidence of an occupant. Garbage cans full at the curb, recycling box stacked with flattened, lidless tin cans and unrinsed milk jugs. Broken glass hung on the front porch like family. Through an open window, I saw a girl. She was quiet, thin. I lowered my face just below the white peeled paint frame. Closer, her black hair bundled in a tight bun on her head. Her long neck seemed to struggle under the weight. She sat there on a twin mattress on the floor. She was still except for the steady back and forth of her index finger that picked at her dry knees. I watched her and I wanted to ask her questions. Were there days spent lying on this mattress and praying? I walked over to the door, and there was a hole where a knob should have been. 
I pushed slightly and the squeak announced my presence. The hallway in front of me was long, narrow, wallpapered in yellow and hurt. I ran my hands along the seams and stopped in front of her open door. The doorway framed my body like a painting I once saw. She turned and looked at me funny. She squinted like she knew me. She squinted like she saw me. She said my name under her breath as if it were her own. I sat beside her on her perfectly made bed. She lowered her knees, rolled onto her belly, put her chin in my palm. She smiled at, she smiled at me, but her eyes spoke of home. A house far from here. How do I bring you home? On a floating wall shelf above her head, a thin blanket folded and patterned with pink-haired dolls. I reached up and pulled it down, watched as the folds released in slow motion with the worn, patterned blanket around her pointy shoulders. I kissed her on the forehead. She laid her heavy head on a stained yellow pillow with a sigh as her neck finally found relief. She slept slow and long as her breath pulled and released the curtains in a back and forth wave as if grazing a shoreline over and over. I got up and walked over to her closet. Two pairs of red shoes were lined against the wood paneled wall. Four dresses hung from wire hangers in small closet that wasn't hers. She'd never wear those dresses. I closed the door behind me. I bet she'll never find her mother. Thank you. Yeah. It's very nice. 